The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to episode 19 of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we are joined by a true insider who worked to create the beloved Wizard sister publications, Anime Insider, Toy Fair, that then went on to become editor of the hilarious Topless Robot website before moving on to io9.com and beyond. Uh, so let's welcome to the show, Rob Bricken. How you doing, Rob? Good, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Now, uh, you know, just for conversation's sake, get to know each other here. You know, you have a, an anime background there. I just have to admit, for me, I don't really have a huge anime source of knowledge. So for me, like my one frame of reference, the one Japanese property that, uh, you know, has ever gotten my interest was The Giver. Mm. So like back in the day, I had like all the original OVA tapes and I had a few of the, the manga volumes and like this weird out of control one-off movie you know i remember they did like the remake series i think that was even like advertised in wizard at one point and i, and I just didn't connect with it i love the american live action films though those mm-hmm. are a ton of fun they're so goofy yet i feel like i rarely see the guyver represented just like in general pop culture when it comes to japanese entertainment so i'm curious in your knowledge and experience where does the guyver stand amongst anime fans or what is your personal familiarity or take on the character I- I know it because it was one of the first anime to come over in the uh, late 80s, 90s boom that started and, you know, took us all the way through like the about 2007 or so, 2008. Yeah, the Guyver, I knew it as a classic, but most people don't at this point. If there's any kind of infamy to it in America, it is from the live action movie, which I think is mostly because Mark Hamill is in it. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, even when the show came back in 2005, we kind of barely covered it just because there was no heat. It was was for much older fans already then yeah so it, it was kind of a, a relic by that point and even not a very popular one yeah it doesn't have the soap opera history of so many other famous manga and anime titles so for you then how did those japanese properties enter your life what was your exposure and how did you allow that fandom to grow so i was a nerd from a very early age mostly toys i got into comics a little bit through junior high and high school so I met a girl named Janice my sophomore year of high school, and we started dating for a very long time, six years. And she very early introduced me to uh, anime and manga. So she had some of the early comics that had been released in the early 90s from Viz. And she had these tapes, like sixth generation tapes of shows uh, that had aired off Japan. No subtitles or anything like that. Rama One Half, a movie called Justy, I think, and just a, a weird assortment of stuff and I absolutely fell in love. I borrowed the tapes and showed them to friends. She kind of narrated what was happening to me and I did it for my friends and it was just a really good. I kind of, I, I fell for it. But I never considered myself like a hardcore anime fan until I got to Wizard and I kind of had to transform into one. But I, I did enjoy it. I went to Suncoast and bought my videos. Right, yeah, 
that's where you always had to go. Always. And I watched Dragon Ball Z pretty religiously in college, but Anime Insider is where uh, it really took off for me. Yeah, and we're going to get to that very soon. But I'm curious that you mentioned, you know, your brief foray to the American comic scene, you know, in those early years. Were you reading Wizard at all, like during your collecting? And what kind of titles were standing out to you that you would pick up? I never read an issue of Wizard. Not a single one. Wow. I read, again, I was first and foremost a toy guy, so I read every toy there. I, I mean, I knew of Wizard because I went to a comic shop weekly to pick up my stuff and saw it there, but like I was reading my manga, had few assorted series, none of which stick in my head. But I got into comics originally when I was, I think I was 10. My grandmother got me three comics when I was sick once. I remember one was Avengers 277, the end of the Under Siege arc, which completely captured my imagination because the Avengers were just decimated. And I was like, what is happening here? It made me an Avengers fan since way back. And then there was the Phantom Stranger Secret Origins, which I don't know if you know, one of the origins is from Alan Moore. And it's he's like a Phantom Stranger is like a fallen angel, which is weird. But the really bizarre one is where the Phantom Stranger is the guy who who basically whips Jesus Christ while he's on the cross. And Jesus finally has enough and says, you have to wander the earth forever. Um, wow. It's just like so mind-blowing for a 10-year-old kid. Not in a great way, just like <laughs> it was. It, it made an impression is what I'll say. So yeah. I collected Avengers for a while and I grew the Wanderer. And, uh, but I, I've mostly fallen off once the, the manga came around. So then as it stands, you know, obviously you, you've mentioned several times, it was toys. It was toys is what you were about. So uh, did you find that you were just going to store and collecting everything of like one particular line or was it for you just like bits and pieces here I like this I like that or what was your obsession as a kid man it was bad so 95 those new Star Wars toys toys hit and uh, I remember very distinctly I had put away childish things in terms of the toys and I hadn't really thought about it but those Star Wars toys came out I said oh I love the figures when I was a kid there were like eight of them they looked like garbage but I thought oh it'll be fun to get those and then they kept putting up action figures, of course. I thought, well, I'll just get a few more. And this ends up with me in college going to Toys R Us at 5 a.m., like every Saturday, waiting in line to run in in hopes of finding new Star Wars toys. <laughs> I spent so much money. It was like a heroin addiction, like a train fighting. Like, I would have crawled through a filthy toilet to get a Riki's action figure because <laughs> uh, I could never find that guy. It was like, eventually, my girlfriend and I broke up and I realized that I wanted to have another date again. Uh, I really kind of curtailed the toys, but I was doing Star Wars. I did like anything that caught my fancy, uh, like random X-Men or stuff, anything that just looked good, anything I saw in Toy Fair that looked pretty cool. And I thought I would just get it to feed that addiction. Yeah, I mean, I know it well. That's how I spent all my summers from like junior high through high school was just like, get up, figure out what was the, the day the truck came in at Target, then just go in and wait for them to bring out the boxes and just be like, what, what's the new toy biz? What do you got there? Oh. You know. So yeah. It was so bad. So many grown men there. Like <laughs> half, half of them were there for like Hot Wheels. The other half, a quarter were scalpers from comic book stores. So it was a, it was very irritating. Yeah, I, I eventually worked at a Toys R Us and then managed a KB toy store. And so, yeah, I can tell you 100% the Matchbox and the Hot Wheels <laughs> guys, they are the craziest collectors out there. You want crazy toy collectors, they are out of their minds. Like they will spend hours digging through a giant bin or yeah. the most stolen item at those stores was always 
die-cast cars. Like, that's uh-huh. what they would take. All right, so uh, now here's the thing, though. So, uh, you know, as we're talking about, you know, you weren't a devotee of Wizard, but you were of Toy Fair. But according to our records, you did eventually you know, appear in Wizard. So uh, uh, in the Wizard masthead, we found you first as a contributor with issue 126 featuring a March 2002 cover date. It may have been 125. We actually found out we're missing that issue, so it's <laughs> on the way. But uh, you had a sidebar article about how Spirited Away was not getting U.S. release, and this was just a travesty. I really nailed that one. Yeah. <laughs> and then the early version of the Anime Insider was coming out concurrently with that appearance from Wizard, you know, as a, a two-issue, it was like kind of a special, just called Anime Invasion at the time. So let's talk about this timeline. Let's try to piece it together. What led you to getting hired at Wizard? Well, again, I have read Toy Fair religiously, loved it. It was my dream job. And so when I got out of college, I did a year working at the, at the arts and entertainment editor at the local Alt Weekly. And I think I just sent my clips like out of nowhere. Maybe I saw a listing, but whatever. I sent a packet of my stuff. I did a lot of like comedy stuff as a anything I could inject humor into uh, my writing, if there's features or just little like blurbs and stuff like that, I would, I would do. So yeah, I got a, a call to come up and I was absolutely petrified. It was very funny because I sent 50 other um, resumes to like various alt newspapers and video game magazines and didn't hear, hear back from a single one, just my dream job. The wizard thing is that they would have like little toy columns or like an anime section or something like very small stuff. And they would just fob that off on Toy Fair and the, the anime guys. It was, you know, nothing we really look forward to. It was just kind of like busy work, but we, we did it. And so I show up in wizard every here and there. Um, but I uh, joined Toy Fair at issue 49 and I came like just enough to help with some copy editing so i was in the math head but my first issue where i was writing stuff was 50. very cool so as you arrive there like you said it's a dream job you want to be writing for toy fair you want to be in that world so what was your impression just of the the offices the staff members everybody you'd been reading their stuff for all this time man it was amazing it's it's really tough to explain because i grew up in lexington kentucky which is the second biggest city there. Doug Goldstein wanted to ask me if it had, does a real city in Kentucky mean if it has six trailer parks instead of five? And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's, it's a real city. And so Congress is not, it's barely a town. It's just a few long highways with the, the commercial stuff on it. So that was, I was really taken aback by that. But then I got into that office, which it was a real office building. It had a great lobby with, you know, these Alex Ross prints and pinball machines, foosball table, but it still managed to look professional. And then going around the office, it was, they were all bullpens. They were everything, you know, all professional, except that every square inch of every desk that had free space was covered in toys and collectibles. It was just like heaven. I really, I'm a pretty shy guy the best of times so i was just kind of intimidated by everyone except toy fair which i had to talk to you in order to secure the job but it was really kind of surreal meeting zach oat who i'd been reading there for a while uh and he became one of my closest friends and uh you know uh, tom root was the other big name i knew but he had left like just before i got there so as you're getting into the job then what was the experience of contributing to toy fair then were you pitching were you just receiving assignments and ultimately what was like the main perk of that gig for you the main perk of the gig was stuff like (laughs) we would just get boxes of toys like palisades toys was really loved us so they kept sending us things we would get like 
collectibles or ask for stuff for the Twisted Toy Fair Theater archive. It was just stuff for free. And I got a, a lot of great toys. The, the Toy Fair would have their exclusive toys, which ranged from occasionally cool to just mind-bogglingly terrible. <laughs> the uh, the big thing was always the Simpsons toys, which could be sold on eBay to make up for any like deficits in your wizard. Yes, style. we have heard about this. <laughs> Did you hear that they were called Yellow Gold? No, I love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was hired to do incoming first. Like we, we all did all sorts of things, uh, all through the magazine. Like I would do random features, like we'd all just be kind of divvied up. But I, I did run incoming for a while, collecting all the images and stuff like that and writing all the blurbs. There were so many blurbs in that magazine and eventually just like anime invasion slash insider took up more and more of my time till they moved me over to that completely which was a kind of a bummer because again toy fair was my first love yeah yeah let's let's talk about that timeline here too because we do have a uh, a a medium-sized archive of toy fair here from like the earliest issues and then getting into your later issues of toy fair so in issue 59 which was july 2002 cover date you contributed actually a letter from the associate editor which you were at this point professing your love for christopher lee as an explanation as to why there have been so many jokes featuring this prolific actor throughout the magazine it's very hilarious we'll post it up on social media when your interview goes up here but also in this issue was your list of the top 25 star wars toys of all time and oh, so yeah. obviously like you said this is that's where your obsession was you knew it well but your number one on this list do you remember is it the Adat? it was actually the naboo royal starship okay. from episode one line so the question is do you stand by this ranking all these years later that that of that time was the number one star wars toy what you need to understand is that the the bylines for that sort of thing were um were vastly misleading in the sense that <laughs> no one would trust me. I wouldn't even trust me to pick by myself the you know top 25 Star Wars toys of all time. I wrote the whole thing, but everyone in the Toy Fair staff got together and argued and argued and argued what should be on there, what place, and everything like that. The AT-AT would absolutely have been my, my preference. I assume it was pretty high up in the list. It was number two. <laughs> <laughs> But what, I, what surprised me was most of the toys on the list were not from the vintage Kenner line. The majority of them were the later 90s figures. So, I mean, obviously sculpting and everything helped a lot, but it said like nostalgia maybe wasn't playing a role in, in the, that decision making there. No, they, I mean, it was all about the, the best figure, the, you know, the, the best Luke Skywalker, the best likeness, everything like that. It was nostalgia played a factor, but with so many toys coming out and just like, them being so good at that time compared to how it was i mean it was a pretty easy choice for us to like pick the good looking one instead of the the rinky dink but beloved kenner one you know you mentioned the anime insider then becoming this busy thing now obviously inquest and toy fair were very well established by the time here in the early 2000s the anime insider is launching so what could you tell us about the development of that magazine and did you feel like the wizard executives were anticipating the success of this new magazine or was it just an experiment to test the waters like were you a cheerleader of it how did this come together this is a tale so anime invasion came out and i can guarantee you it was 100 because all these anime companies were advertising in wizard and toy fair and japanese toy companies were as well and it was very 
clear to the wizard brass that if they put out an anime magazine, they would make a lot of money. And so they did test the waters with a single issue. It was Anime Invasion, and it did really well. And then they did another one a few months later, and that also did really well. And then they made it quarterly, and then they went to bi-monthly and monthly. What happened was when I got to Wizard, two weeks in, I think, the galleys for the first anime invasion went in. And I was like, I did not know this was happening. This is awesome. A, a Wizard anime magazine from the, you know, Toy Fair and Wizard guys. Um, mostly Toy Fair because Toy Fair was uh, headed up by Doug Goldstein, who also ran the specials project. Right. So he did anime invasion there too. And so I excitedly looked at it and it was a mess. There were so many weird things. There was a top 50 list and like Star Blazers was over Evangelion. There was a guide to like the Dragon Ball episodes instead of Dragon Ball Z, which was infinitely more popular. There was a price guide, which was bananas because all the manga at that point was being collected in volumes anyway, which never changed price because they were always available. And I, I went to Doug and told him I could to make this better. I liked anime a, a pretty good amount, which was way, way more than anyone else at Wizard. And the magazine had like kind of like, it was kind of geared for young kids, but there were sometimes there was that more like maximy humor. And I knew that teens were the people who were really getting into to anime and it wasn't kind of clicking for that. The joke is, I've told it anyone who's ever interviewed me, is that I was the only person in the building who knew why Goku's hair turned yellow in Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> And what you're talking about, that there's a little more PG-13 material in there. I mean, on the second issue of just Anime Invasion, the top thing is 50 Sailor Moon Shockers Forbidden Secrets Revealed. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but also in that second issue, you are there as the associate editor showing off a tattoo. Yeah. I mean, you, you are there just, was that a real tattoo? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was at Ace Weekly, I did a story about tattoos and their rise of popularity and i got a tattoo for the story Orushi yatsura was one of my favorite series it was by the uh, woman who did inuyasha and rama one half so you know when i say like i was like kind of an anime fan obviously i did get an anime tattoo so i'm maybe being a bit disingenuous but certainly like the biggest fan at wizard by far wizard was not interested toy fair was marginally interested because the anime had very cool toys. And just to add of curiosity, is that your only ink on your body to this date, or has uh, has your artistic <laughs> expression on your skin grown? I've only gotten one more tattoo, but it's a very large tattoo of Luke Skywalker and fighting Darth Vader that is done in like ancient Greek pottery style. Wow. So rad. <laughs> I got that. Uh, there was an artist at Gizmodo who drew it up for a feature that uh, never came to be. And I was like, I'd like to put this on my body, please. And she was very pleased. That is fantastic. Now, here's the thing. Like you said, so obviously now you are kind of their go-to guy in a lot of ways. You're correcting things. You're figuring things out. Now, with Toy Fair issue number 69, which was May 2003, we see your last appearance in the Toy Fair masthead, at least that we could find in our archives here as a contributing editor at that point. Yeah, and uh, right. so you said Anime Ed Center became the major gig. What kind of changing or additions were you making to the publication well how did your influence grow there so it's when it went bi-monthly it needed like someone to work on it full time that's when i kind of moved over there and i pretty quickly became managing editor because i was in charge of a great deal doug was over us all but 
I think he would fully admit that he really did not care about anime at all. <laughs> so he was relying on my input for a lot, but also working with uh, the upstairs people who would say, yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! is selling like hotcakes. We're putting Yu-Gi-Oh! on the cover. Or this company is advertising a great deal. We're putting such and such on the cover. And he and I and the other staffers who were under me would, you know, try and generate some kind of content based on that. But I, I looked over every inch of that magazine before it went to press and helped figure out all the features and stuff like that. And so for you, like, did you have a favorite feature or one that you were able to put in, you know, again, when you're in charge, you can kind of push some things through. Is there one in particular that stands out to you? I was able to lobby for a redesign of the magazine when I was trying to pivot it into that that big team market that made it Dragon Ball Z such a success and all the like countless anime DVDs that were kind of coming out at that point. So at a certain point, there's a redesign where it looks a lot cooler, a lot more readable, doesn't have crazy orange fonts anywhere. <laughs> Doug and I kind of rebuilt it from the ground up in terms of like the different departments and so forth. Uh, I convinced him to get rid of the price guide finally. So yeah, I, I, I'm really proud of like kind of all of it and what we were able to do. How long was that period? How long were you there at Anime Insider then? I was at Wizard, I think like altogether five and a half years. So my last issue, I think was 36, which sounds like three years, but remember it was quarterly and then bi-monthly and then yada, yada, yada. So, and I'm curious, during that time period, was there a particular, like, anime or manga property that readers were obsessed with, or, you know, that they were writing in letters about, things like that, that you just got tired of hearing about? Was there a specific, like, running gag or debate that was always uh, going on there? Fans kind of liked everything. It's those early years before the anime companies just licensed whatever garbage Japan was coming out with. Not every anime series is is equal. But what I remember is having to do, being told by upstairs that we needed to cover this thing called Duel Masters, which was a collectible card game like Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know where it came from. I'm still not really sure. <laughs> I remember thinking for a long time it didn't come from Japan at all, but like no one liked it. No one at the magazine, no reader as far as I can tell. But we had to do, it seemed like forever we were covering Duel Masters in increasingly desperate, bitter ways. And so in your experience, then, this is the real question that I have, because like you say, in the office, the number of anime and manga fans was very low, at least in the early days of this magazine, and I'm sure until the Anime Insider staff is growing. But was there ever crossover that you were able to chart between American comics fans moving over to manga? You know, like, did you find that there was crossover people by Wizard and Anime Insider? Was there any way for you to track that or was there a pretty deep line in the sand overall for what you could tell i always found it to be the same as the wizard staff and the anime insider staff that like never the twain shall meet like <laughs> as far as i can tell like most comic guys are pretty well purists and definitely most anime fans were purists like it had to be the authentic thing anything american that pretended to be or done in an anime style was garbage so yeah it was it was a real deep split which you know kept the the split between the magazines pretty solid there was more crossover appeal with toy fair because again there were myriad 
anime action figures and collectibles. Interesting. Okay, so now, uh, obviously, you know, we often hear about these notorious shenanigans that were occurring in the Wizard offices. Were the anime uh, insider folks, like, just kind of quiet and keep it to themselves, or did you guys ever feel the brunt of something Pat or somebody else came up with? We definitely, definitely were like an island apart. Our, our island could see Toy Fair, but the the land that was Wizard Magazine was never in sight. So they left <laughs> us alone and we kind of like huddled in our little anime nerd corner. But somehow, like I came, all these weird things happened. Like I came right after the big prank you probably heard about where Pat McCallum and others wrapped every single thing in the Toy Fair office with aluminum foil. Yes. And when I say everything, I mean hundreds of action figures, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, office chairs, literally every square inch of everything was covered in aluminum foil to the point when I came in, there were still parts of aluminum foil on things. <laughs> and also Wizard was like a big freewheeling thing where they would have like work lunches every day and stuff like that. And I missed all of that pretty much. Things had like really calmed down just before I got there for reasons I do not remember other than like, we need to settle everything down. We got to shape up a little. Yeah. Now I, I got to know this though. You're saying you're an island apart there, but did you ever get a visitor to that island? So we must ask you, Rob, <laughs> Garib Shavis, cool or fool? Uh, both. Like, <laughs> I will confirm, I think, what everyone has said about Garib, which is that he would just kind of, like, wander through the building occasionally, like, as if carried by a breeze in a, a dreamlike state where he would just kind of waft in and say, oh, yeah, blah, 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 and then, you know, kind of wander out again uh, in some kind of, like, proprietary ownership of the company, which he was. Yeah, it, he did not remember names. He, I think he had to be told every time what the anime insider office was. I mean, I worked there for five years. I don't know how many times that I introduced myself to him. <laughs> but he did, you know, he saw the opportunity for the magazine. He let Pat roll with it. And, you know, Brian and Doug, and, you know, they was very popular. gave me a job. There's He may not remember names, but he started something pretty great. And one of still feels like the most iconic job of my career. And I think that's actually going to true for uh, several of the others. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that it's just, it, it plays out that way. Yeah, he just kept the hits coming, though. He just, he let it happen, and uh, the success came. So this is the question, then, what led, after those five years or so, to your departure from Anime Insider and moving on to become the editor of the Topless Robot website? And, of course, we have to ask, how responsible were you for the name of the site? Oh, boy. Okay, so I was basically losing my mind at Anime Insider at the time. Andrew Carden was in charge of specials, and at that point he had given me total reign. I mean, he, ch he chimed in because he had his experience, but I was basically fully in charge of the magazine at that point. And I think I'm a, a good manager and I'm very proud of the magazine, but I'm not sure that my disposition is 100% suited for dealing with like upstairs executives and their weird demands and everything like that. I had this perfect version of what the magazine was going to be every single time. And uh. I just, I, I couldn't make it and I, I just couldn't reconcile it. So I was offered a job at Funimation to make an anime news 
kind of faux MySpace website, which went absolutely nowhere and was sabotaged. I'm not going to get into that. Oh, wow. It was laid off after a year and uh, became a freelance writer in 2007. And I was doing random things like bank newsletters. And then I contacted Bill Jensen, who was, when I first started, managing editor of Toy Fair. And in one of the most inexplicable career paths, but amazing career paths I've ever heard of, he somehow had become director of new media at Village Voice Media, a very large company, in the same amount of time it had taken me to go from starting at Toy Fair to unemployed. <laughs> so he was interested in doing all the blogs that were for the Village Voices were for individual newspapers in thus individual cities. And he wanted to get into like national blogs and starting with the nerd one. I'm not sure if he had it in mind before I called him up and begged him for work, but he and I kind of plotted that out. And so for the for the name, which was very distinctive and less problematic at that point, I remember very distinctly like giving him list of like nerd nouns and list of very memorable sassy adjectives. So that like and we were just we would like kind of mix and match trying it. We decided on robot very quickly, I think, and then Topless Robot just kind of stuck because it was so distinct. That was both of us, but I I was the one who generated the list with both Topless and Robot on it. Okay, so I I have to tell you, so I used to read Topless Robot daily, like at work. So obviously, like they were not flagging anything, you know, in that period. But I thank you, Rob, for the many years of distraction and getting me through that job. I appreciate that very much. It was that was a very very fun job that I just. After another five years there, I was I felt kind of exhausted with that. Especially, it was probably Fan Fiction Friday that broke me more than anything. Yeah. Like there, I just like that was it became so disheartening every week uh, to like look through mountains of horrible erotic fan fiction <laughs> because I it had to be just the right one. It had to be the right length. It had to be the right craziness. Yeah, it was genuinely depressing there at the end. Yeah, and you had the obviously you were very well known for the FAQs as well, right? So you would. Yeah kind of these non-spoiler reviews and give details about, you know, films and these big, you know, media properties and stuff like that. So did that ever become overwhelming or is that just fun? Because they were obviously, like you say, there was a, a very focused tinge of humor to everything that was on that site. Some of it angry humor, but... Uh... <laughs> Topless Robot was very bitter. It was a very mean-spirited, bitter site that was... <laughs> that probably wouldn't fly today, but it was very fun to do. I'd had enough nerd experience that I felt pretty confident calling my shots and saying what was going on between the lines of this stuff. And I grew up in mystery science theater. It's one of my favorite things. And yes. so just mocking things, mocking these, you know, big budget movies with the FAQs. I was going to say Michael Bay got it the worst, maybe. <laughs> I, I will stand by that one, probably. Um, oh, God, just had a flashback to Revenge of the Fallen. <laughs> So no, those were always good. They were pretty few and far between. Sometimes I, they felt a little forced, but sometimes I, I felt inspired in my hate for a movie, and those those always worked out very well. Yeah, and I have to say, so you know, the reason I bring it up, the reason I want to talk about Topless Robot is as we've had these interviews, and I've just like had discussions. The loss of Wizard when Wizard closes its doors in 2011, and really, you know, by that point, it had been many years that it was not the same magazine, the same attitude. Yeah, Topless Robot really 
really was where you should have gone as a wizard reader. It was the website that carried on that legacy, in my opinion, in a slightly more crass way. But at the same time, it was just, you it, you felt at home again, reading all the content on Topless Robot. So I'm curious for you, did you feel like your time, again, like your experiences at Wizard and Toy Fair and Anime Insider influenced the content and the attitude of Topless Robot? And it was just like, hey, they're giving me free reign. This is me. Oh, completely. I mean, not just the, my time at Toy Fair, but my time reading Toy Fair. It also shaped my sense of humor a great deal. And you can love things and still take the piss out of them. It was a very mystery science theater, too. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I was used a lot more profanity and I was a lot more bitter about things. But uh, that was the same ethos. My thought was that, hey, Wizard Magazine was about comics. Toy Fair was about toys. Anime Insider was about anime, obviously. And those are all great for those individual fans. But my goal really was like, okay, I may like toys, but I want to keep up on kind of the big comic stuff. I just want to be like a well-rounded nerd. I just want to be kept up to date on kind of everything while I still have my passions. Yeah, that was my very specific goal to be able to kind of like, I'm not going to cover everything, but I'll cover all the big stuff that you want to know about as a well-rounded nerd. And hey, if anybody wants to go back, you can check out some of the hits on, uh, if you go to the Wayback Machine, you know, Topless Robot is archived there. And in particular, when Captain America, the first Avenger was about to come out, you had a post where it was the first <laughs> shot of Bucky and you're like, no one cares about Bucky. And it was all just you ranting about how it wasn't a good idea to have Bucky in this movie. Sure, they're going to do a, a Winter Soldier plot down the road, most likely, but uh, this kid sidekick thing, it's not going to work out. Oh, uh, I mean, I can't imagine how many things I was wrong about on that yeah. side. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I, I would just throw my opinion out there. The other thing was, the influence was Deadspin, which was allowed themselves to cover the news, but like really put themselves in there, explained their biases, their explanations. I always hoped that I explained myself fully as opposed to just doing a hot take like Bucky sucks, nah. But I know I I blew several things in that in, in that thing. But I was doing ten posts a day by myself. So like, eh, whatever strikes my fancy at that moment. Yeah. So I, I have to ask this question, which is, what is the question I'm not asking that I should? Basically, you know, what do you think needs to be revealed about your experience as being part of the, the wizard family of magazines and beyond? One, it was very stressful. Two, because Anime Insider dealt with Japanese companies, sometimes directly, sometimes through their licensees. It was crazy. And not just because of like a cultural divide, but because Japan held all the anime. So they basically like controlled all the American companies like puppets for sometimes very specifically like Pioneer slash Genion and Pioneer slash Genion USA. Uh, Genion would force its American affiliates to pay to license their shows, even though they were technically the same company, and pay exorbitant fees for it. But they had to because those were owners of the company. And then also, of course, the reason the anime market really crashed is because these Japanese licensors would force these companies to take all this garbage that would come out and not sell, but they, you know, the companies had paid a lot of money for, had to. And Anime Insider, well, the, the, the Wizard Toy Fair model was absolutely not Japan's cup of tea. 
Uh. Eventually, they kind of like to, in order to keep covering things, we got rid of the word balloons. We got rid of the faux twisted toy fair theater with anime toys that, that ran for a while. We did away with fan artwork and we added copyrights to everything that no other magazine did. It, it was kind of intense, but then there would just be inexplicable decisions. Like there was one I remember so particularly. We wanted to put Read or Die, the TV series, on the cover. And we we knew it was going to be a popular show with fans because there was the the movie beforehand and it stars new characters and they gave us three pieces of art that were all terrible they were all like soft drawn slightly cheese kicking shots of, of like nothing action packed nothing really striking huh. they had mounds of key art over japan i know i saw it in the japanese magazine i saw it in the merchandise but they would only give us let us have one of those three images that were all terrible and we chose one and then they decided, nah, we don't want to promote our product on the cover of a magazine, an American magazine. And I can't understand that decision. I just like, why would you not want your product to sell? What is the idea? And they just didn't care about the American market. It was all basically bonus money for them. Yeah. So let's ask this on a, on a lighter note, though. You mentioned the main perk of Toy Fair in those days, yeah, was the swag, where the figures coming into the office. So did you hang on to any of that, like, ad that you took home on your way out the door from Anime Insider? Oh, so much. A lot of it is in a, a storage unit. Uh, I want to go get it so badly. I can't imagine what other stuff is there. But yeah, statues, action figures. I was able to, like, give several action figures to my little brother who thought I was very cool at the time. He no longer thinks that now, but I'm about to stop <laughs> giving him toys. One of my favorites, uh, because it's so dumb, is that there was an exclusive toy for Toy Fair based on House of the Dead, probably a mostly forgotten Sega arcade game that was, you know, had the, the light guns with it. And this figure was a thing called Strength, which was basically a purple Incredible Hulk with a purple, like, bag over his head. And so the Toy Fair exclusive version of this was well, Strength, carried a huge chainsaw, and the exclusive was on the chainsaw, there were just the words Toy Fair. <laughs> it was unfathomable, and even better, Toy Fair was misspelled in the sense they put a space between toy and fair. It is, I can't imagine how many of these weird things were sold, but I, I love it to death. It's just iconic for me of some of the weirdness of working there. And speaking of that, as we close out here, what do you feel, whether it's for you personally or just what you've been told over the years, is the legacy of Wizard and Anime Insider and Toy Fair? Like, from your contributions to all those magazines and that universe of publications, what do you hear about the most? I don't know how much impact anime insider had because again uh, uh, the japanese anime fans are just so so pure they want like direct from the source japanese and uh well there were certainly people who liked our lighter funnier american take on it there were still plenty of people who were like now um no no americans involved i think wizard still has a great impact on comics journalism anytime anyone tries to do a feature or a top 10 list or any kind of like decent journalism, i think they're 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 prodding the path that that wizard once did uh any time anyone wants to be funny about comics uh they're in there somewhere um toy fair i don't know but like the biggest legacy for me is always going to be like one it helped me get topless robot which was a huge part of my career and it was my career going forward it was some incredible friends i made we all stay in touch we've always stayed in touch like well over a decade later it was 
just an incredibly impactful job for all of us. Still, is my number one job in a lot of ways. It's it's kind of what I think of. It influenced my life so much. I got to go to Japan ten times. I got to meet the the people who made the new He-Man toys. I got to play bongos in a Japanese bar so long that my hands turned purple. <laughs> uh, just a, a wealth of experiences that I, I never would have imagined myself that uh, that it opened up for me. So, yeah, I'll, I mean, as stressful as it was and as weird as it was sometimes, I'll always be incredibly grateful and glad that I was a part of it. Yes, that's fantastic to hear. So speaking of which, where can people find your work these days and connect with you online? Well, they can try and get me on Twitter, but I only check it like every four months or so. So expect a wait time. I mainly do my nerd writing now at uh, io9 as a freelancer after I step down there as editor. So you can check me out there. I'm doing a series on reviewing the old Dungeons and Dragons novels of the early 90s, and I'm having a deliriously good time with it. I also will still make fun of old 80s cartoons and 90s cartoons anytime someone lets me. Yeah, it is my bread and butter. And if someone wants to pay me to write nerd stuff, I will happily do it. It's literally the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thanks so much, Rob. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. And thank you all for listening. Another edition of The Wizard Files in the books. Great talking to you, Rob. And it'll be so great to talk to the rest of you wizard staffers out there. We really have enjoyed gathering your stories, and I believe you've got one to tell. So if you're listening to your coworkers spill the beans, why don't you consider joining us? We would love to hear what your experience was at Wizard Magazine or any of the many wizard publications. Uh, I can tell you that next time around, we have a very fun guest, Mr. Greg Orlando. He was there and witnessed to some wild shenanigans in the offices and uh, certainly had many opinions to share. I really hope that you will join us for episode 20. Yes, number 20 of The Wizard Files. Of course, you can stay connected with us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Of course, you can check out the YouTube channel and you can also, if you got something to say, you got some ideas for the show, some suggestions, send them on over to wizardscomicspod at gmail.com but until next time we're closing the files this has been a presentation of the retro network